Our sermon today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7. We'll see it printed just a couple of verses this morning. We'll talk about the wider context of what's going on um, when Jesus spoke these words. But our sermon text this morning is John 7, 37 through 39. It's printed for you in your bulletins. You can uh, flip there in your, in your Bible. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. On the last and greatest day in the festival, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this in the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and in it we get a glimpse of who you are and what you're about. I pray in these moments and illumine our hearts to understand the words of Scripture, that they may become uh, true to life to us. Open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory and majesty and beauty of Jesus, that we may love him all the more. I pray this in his name. Amen. So, uh, one of the places that people and I used to live, we lived in downtown Orlando. And I love Orlando, not just for Disney World and Universal Studios, though I, I gotta be honest, I love tourist stuff too. So that's that's great as well. Um, but Orlando is this bustling, diverse city with fantastic food and just it, it's a great city. But anyway, we live downtown and we live really close to where uh, Interstate 4 and one of the freeways meet each other. And so there was just this constant hum of cars in our neighborhood. I mean, they weren't driving down our street. We didn't live, literally live on the freeway, but they were just right over there. And we lived there long enough where uh, the little place we lived downtown was kind of a more quiet neighborhood as, as far as, like, we lived on a dead-end street, so we didn't have a lot of traffic at all. And one day, we had a friend come over, and he and I were hanging out in the front yard, and he had never been to this particular place we were living, and he said, you know, this is really great. Maybe you guys are close to that town. I said, yeah, and, and I really love that we're in this quiet neighborhood. I said, we're, you know, it's really quiet and peaceful back here. And he looked at me, and he said, really? I said, yeah, you, you know, listen. I said, you, you know, there's not a lot of noise in here. He said, Tim, all I can hear is cars. And when he said that, it was like somebody flipped a switch in my head and suddenly heard it again. And I was like, oh, wow, no, you're right. <laughs> There's this constant zoom, 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 zoom going on. But we had lived in it long enough at that point where I didn't even hear it anymore. It was a constant noise that I did not hear anymore. I needed somebody else to help me and a voice almost from the outside to break in and let me see what was going on. Friends, we live in a world full of noise, literally noise and figuratively <laughs> a world of noise. Um, just think about it. We're just drowning in noise and the busyness and loudness of life. There's always a, a TV on in the background. There's always a radio on. There's always a podcast to listen to. There's always earbuds in our ear. We live in the midst of just constant noise. And I think we're not even realizing it sometimes. And beyond just the noise, the sound, we live in a world of noise, of uh, competing interests calling for our allegiance. Every commercial we hear is offering us some version of the good life. 
by telling us if we buy their product, we're going to be complete, or at least a little bit more happy. We're being told constantly, you need this, you need that, you need this, you need that. If you get this, you'll be this. We're surrounded by noise, and it wears us out. It does. It wears us out. It impacts us whether we realize it or not. A lot of times it's operating in the background. We don't even realize what it's doing to us. There's political figures, there's religious figures calling for us to follow after them. Uh, there's scientific misinformation on social media. There's the ups and downs of our world. There's family drama. Noise, noise, to quote the Grinch. Noise, 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 noise. It weighs us down. So what can we do in the world of our noise? Here in John chapter 7, the words that Jesus speaks here that are quoted for us, Jesus speaks these words in a cacophony of noise. Now, we didn't read all of John 7 and 8. I figured uh, reading two full chapters of the Gospel of John might be, be a little bit uh, <laughs> too much time this morning. But the context for when Jesus is speaking here is an absolute world of noise. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. A little bit more. But I think these words, like they were then in the midst of that noise, can serve as a call and an invitation for us in the middle of our noise that's wearing us out. To hear the voice of Jesus breaking in and to find Him as our spiritual nourishment, to find Him as our sense of worthiness, to find Him as our joy. Not the things that are calling after our hearts, calling after our allegiances that are surrounding us, but to find Him. As glorious and beautiful and wonderful. And to come back to Him time and time again. So, I'll set the scene here. John 7 and 8. Jesus is in Jerusalem. And He's in Jerusalem for uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, this is one of the busiest and most exciting times of the year. At the time, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three pilgrimage feasts. Which means it's one of the three festivals that happen once a year. That people would drop what they were doing, they would drop their businesses, they would drop whatever was going on at home, and they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. And now most of the other festivals, uh, Passover, um, Pentecost, they had joyous things about them, but they had all kinds of uh, repentance and, and, and good things mixed in, but they had a mix of lament and grief and joy. Tabernacles, Tabernacles was all celebration. It was all festival. And so for reasons you can probably guess, it was the most well-attended religious festivals. At the time, Jerusalem was about 40,000 people population-wise. But at, at the Feast of Tabernacles, it would swell from 40,000 to like 300,000. So all of a sudden, just people are swamping the city. And when they got there, they didn't stay at Hotel 6 or wherever because that didn't exist. What they would do, and this was part of celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, is they would build their own temporary shelters when they got there. That's what Feast of Tabernacles means. They would build their own tents. And they would stay in the tents for the week. So it was like this big week-long camp out with all your friends. And not only that, it happened at the end of the harvest season. This was a culture that was entirely agrarian, entirely built on the harvest season. And so they had just finished all their hard work for the year, and they were celebrating. We just did a great job. We were going to harvest all this stuff. We were well cared for this year. We're going to Jerusalem, and we are going to celebrate. 
And so there's a ton of people there. The, 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 the city is swollen with people. And so when Jesus walks into Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, he walks into this scene. And not only is it bustling and exciting, Jesus has created, uh, well, not created, but he, he's coming into a place where the people are asking, I wonder what Jesus is going to do this time. Jesus has been to Jerusalem before. We've seen it in John. He came in his first Passover in John chapter 2, and he walked into the middle of the temple and he stopped the temple from happening. He turned over the, the, the tables of the money changers, the people who were, you know, making money on the backs of the poor, the people that were traveling in to celebrate Passover. So that was the first thing he did. Last time we saw him in Jerusalem, in John, it was John chapter 5. He comes in and he heals a man who had been dealing with sickness for 38 years. Jesus walked into the poorest part of town and he healed this man. So these are, this is what's happened the last two times we've seen Jesus in Jerusalem. And so the crowd is wondering, what's going to be this time? At, at Tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles, what is Jesus going to do? What's the big splash he's going to make this time? And what we see when he gets there, he starts talking, he starts teaching, he continues to confound and challenge the religious leaders. He's challenging them to see beyond their limited categories of understanding, to see him, Jesus, Jesus standing before them as the inbreaking of God's grace in the world. He, in his person, the fulfillment of all their longings and promises and frustrations of the Old Testament. He, Jesus, the light and life of all mankind. So Jesus is speaking, but he doesn't receive a great welcome necessarily. The other thing that we've seen in the Gospel of John is that as Jesus' ministry continues, he gets more and more opposition. It goes from interested questions from people to outright hostility. And it's never more clear so far in the Gospel of John than in John 7 and 8. It says that the religious leaders send out the temple guards, their special police, to go and try to arrest him, to capture him. And we, and we see recorded these conversations between people in the crowd that are like, who is this guy? Well, he's a good man. No, he's demon-possessed. There's this back and forth. It, it, it's not a great situation <laughs> for Jesus. Jesus is speaking about his oneness with the Father, that he's come to do the Father's will, that he's come to bring God's grace into the world. He is shouted down at times. He's stalked by the temple guards. And at one point, a mob attempts to execute him. There's lots of back and forth in, this in these chapters. It's vitriolic, it's nasty. The crowd is arguing with each other. Religious leaders are plotting behind the scenes. They're dealing with each other harshly. Anyone who questions their opposition to Jesus. People are accusing Jesus of being insane. They're accusing Jesus of being a charlatan. They're accusing him as I said, being demon-possessed. And so it's into this chaos, this noise, that Jesus speaks the words that we have read. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Now there's a lot we can say about the Feast of Tabernacles. There were a lot of uh, uh, ceremonies that went along with it, but I want to focus on one in particular. Um, it was a water festival. That I think it's why Jesus said, come to me and drink. We'll get to that in a second. So Feast of Tabernacles, a little bit more about that. 
it like every like everyone in the religious festivals had a past, present, and future aspect to it. And so when they would come to celebrate, the past aspect is they were looking back to the first generation of Israelites coming out of Egyptian slavery who had lived in the wilderness in tents. They had not built cities because they were on the move. They were in between Egyptian slavery and the promised land. And in that in-between time, they lived in these makeshift tents for an entire generation. They basically lived <laughs> as a traveling group of people. Intense. And so that's one of the things that the Feast of Tabernacles looked back to. So they would come into Jerusalem and they say, for this week, we're going to live like that. And one of the things that this means is we're going to inhabit the experience of our ancestors. They were provided for by God in the midst of the wilderness. And here we are in the promised land, and he continues to provide for us all these generations later. And so that was part of their celebration. Uh, it was kind of like a historical reenactment. In a sense, it was them inhabiting the story of their ancestors, the story that God's providing in the midst of the wilderness. Now, the present, it was a harvest festival, like I said. They were celebrating the fact that that very year, with their hands, they had harvested all these things from the ground that God had provided for them in the here and now. And they also had a future aspect. Feast of Tabernacles looked forward to the future. As they celebrated, they thought, God who has provided before, God who continues to provide, is going to come through on all of his promises. God is going to act decisively in history, not just to provide water for one year's worth of crops, but God is going to fulfill his promise to, to dwell with us in his grace. God, who has said, I will be your God, and you will be my people, is going to come through on that. That was the future aspect of the Feast of Tabernacles, past, present, future. So I think we can see why Tabernacles was celebrated every year. And like I said, they would spend their week in tents, massive camp out, hundreds of thousands of people. I think the closest we can probably, I mean, it's Labor Day weekend, so it kind of works out. Um, that this is landing this weekend. Tabernacles was like a combination of New Year's Eve, so celebrating the year past and looking forward to what's coming next, Thanksgiving, because it was all food, all the time for the whole week, and Labor Day. Just collapsed into one and lasting for eight days. Peace of Tabernacles. And so a lot of things would happen during the festival. Like I said, I want to focus in on one specific ceremony that happened every morning. What would happen is the high priest would go down to this place called the Pool of Sileon. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It was a pool of water just outside the city. And he would get some water, and he would march through the city streets toward the tabernacle with this basically chalice of water. And it wasn't a solemn procession. It wasn't him walking and everyone heads bowed. It was a celebration. It was clapping. It was dancing as he was going. And what he would do is when he got to the Tabernacle. I mean, it got to the temple, he would pour out the water. It was kind of a recognition that God had provided all the water they needed for their, their crops that year. And almost like uh, when we give our offering, it's a portion of what God has given us. They're saying, symbolically, we're going to pour out this water before you, Lord, to recognize you are the one who's provided for us. And this is a celebration that had been practiced for generations and generations. And like I said, 
Like, like the Feast of Tabernacles, they had the past, the present, and the future. In the past, it was looking back to specific, specific instances when the Israelites were in the wilderness without water, and God had miraculously provided for them through Moses water where there was none. It looked to the present, and they're providing, and it looked to the future when God would bring renewal and thriving in the new heavens and the new earth. So, Setting all of that up, that's the scene into which Jesus speaks these words. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. So imagine the ceremony has just happened. The people have just celebrated. The priest has just walked through the city with the water. And Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit. And those who believe in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So what is Jesus saying? He's obviously uh, playing on the fact that water had just been marched through the city. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this. We're here together, looking into the past. We're celebrating the present. We're looking to the future. And in me, the future has arrived. The water that God has provided in the past and the water that he provides in here and now has been pointing to Jesus providing not just physical water, but providing his Holy Spirit, the empowering presence of God, a source of life that can invigorate hearts, not just do crops, but can invigorate and bring life to hearts. Notice what Jesus says specifically. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Now, just like in John, when Jesus says that he's the bread of life, you may remember that from a few weeks ago in John 6, he's speaking in metaphor. Jesus isn't standing there with a pitcher of water telling them literally, come to me, I'm a soda fountain, let me give you something to drink. He's saying this in a symbolic sense. Come to me and drink. He's saying in verse 38, whoever believes in me, to believe in Jesus is to come to him and to drink. And what he's doing is using the image of drinking uh, to highlight an aspect of what it means to believe in him. When we say believe in Jesus, what do we normally mean? We mean that mentally we assent to some facts about who Jesus is. We can almost think of it as only a mental action. We say, yes, we believe Jesus is, is real and he's true. But that's almost treating Jesus just like uh, two plus two equals four. But to believe in Jesus, to place our faith in him, is not just a mental action of saying, yes, I agree that X, Y, and Z is true. To believe in Jesus in the way that he is speaking it does include, absolutely, it does include believing things about him. But it means coming to him to find him as our source of nourishment. To come to him when we are thirsty. To come to him in the noise of our world. Not to run elsewhere, but to come to him and to rest in him. To survive on the grace of God that we survive on water. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. Not just to mentally ascend and believe some things are true, but it means to survive on his grace like we physically survive on water. 
without any of God. That's what it means to come and believe in Jesus. But what else does he say here? Look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, the rivers of living water will flow from within. Now, what is he talking about? What scripture is he referencing? Now, I'm not going to dive too deep, but it's coming from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 47. And if you're reading through the Old Testament, Ezekiel might be the wildest book as far as the imagery. It, it, the imagery is, is uh, God used Ezekiel in his imagination in some big ways. Um, Ezekiel was a prophet about 550 years before the time of Jesus. And he was a prophet during the exile. What had happened is God's people had been in the promised land, but they had turned their back on him. They had forgotten him. They had served other gods. They had oppressed the poor and oppressed the people in the land. And God said, give me a hard restart. And the people were sent into exile, conquered by Babylon for 70 years. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet during the time of the exile. So the temple that had been built by Solomon was destroyed. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. And this is the context to which Ezekiel is ministering. He's in Babylon. And what happens in Ezekiel 47 is he has a vision. He has a vision of a remade temple. Remember, at this time, the temple literally doesn't exist. There's not a stone upon a stone in Jerusalem. It's laid to waste. He has a vision of a remade temple. And flowing from that temple is a river. Flowing from that temple is a river that runs down out of Jerusalem, down to the Dead Sea. Now, if you know anything about the Dead Sea, it's called the Dead Sea because nothing grows there. It's the saltiest place on earth as a lake. It's the saltiest body of water. It's ten times saltier than the ocean. Nothing grows there. The vision that Ezekiel has is that there will be a remade temple where God will dwell with his people. And out of that temple, a river will flow into the Dead Sea and instead of being a dead sea where nothing lives, it will become a place that teems with life. There will be trees on the bank that never stop bearing fruit because they are so nourished. And the dead sea that has no aquatic life will have fish jumping out of the water. This is Ezekiel's vision. As it says in verse 89 of Ezekiel 47, when it empties into the sea, the salty water there will become fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. The picture that Ezekiel paints is a future when life-giving water will flow to the most dead place he can think of. And that dead place will teem with life. So when Jesus calls on this passage here in John chapter 7, what Jesus is saying is that he is the source of that life-giving water. Now you may remember in John chapter 1 it says, The word came, took on flesh, and tabernacled with us. It says dwelled with us, but the word there means tabernacle. And the picture is that in Jesus, the temple is not a building. That Jesus has come to dwell in us. Dwell with us as the new temple of God. And so out from him flows this living water that flows to us. And he's calling on this passage from Ezekiel to say that he is the source of that life-giving water. That all who come to him will find themselves nourished 
to find a source of thriving that brings life, renewing, and inward. Verse 39 in our passage tells us explicitly this is the Holy Spirit of God. And that Jesus gives that Holy Spirit to all who are His. That life-giving grace, the empowering presence of God, the Holy Spirit, is what Jesus promises to give us. So in the, midst, in the midst of a world of noise, we have a source of thriving and nourishment that cannot bring drama, that will satisfy in all the ways that the commercials and the ads can't. And what do we know of the Holy Spirit? I'm just going to walk through a couple of things that the scriptures say about the reality of the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as our comforter. As our comforter. As the one who speaks to our hearts to confirm to us that we are his children. As the one who seals us in his purposes. As the one who renews us in our world of death. The Holy Spirit is called a down payment that guarantees that God's purposes for us will be fulfilled. The Spirit is called the one who empowers us to live our lives as followers of Christ. The one who grows within us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what it means for us to be nourished by His life-giving presence. To be nourished by His grace like our bodies are nourished by water. This is ours. This is what flows to us from Jesus. And as you notice, as Jesus says, he speaks about, let me make sure I quote it correctly. Whoever believes in me, the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. His point is not just that he is the source of nourishment, but as the nourishment of his grace comes to us, it flows out from us to others. Not that people are pointing to us as a Savior. Not at all. We always point back to Jesus. But as I've used the imagery before, the grace of God spills over. It's more than we can contain, and it spills out from us to others. That's what Jesus was offering to all who heard him and the bustle and the noise and the tiring noise of that day. Man, and that's what Jesus offers to us as well. In the midst of chaos and confusion and the noise that surrounds us that we maybe don't even notice anymore because we're so inundated with it. Jesus offers us the grace and the Holy Spirit to satisfy to nourish us. Maybe you're worn out. I know I am. I mean, just beyond the normal tiredness, we're a year and a half into one of the most exhausting periods <laughs> I can think of. Maybe you're wondering. Now, the danger for us is to be like those who in our confession of sin passage from Jeremiah 2. The danger is that what we're going to do in the midst of our weariness, in the midst of this noise, is try to dig wells for ourselves. That we're going to try to dig wells for ourselves to turn to, to find nourishment. But they're wells that won't be able to hold water. They're wells that can't do the job. We're always going to be tempted in this world to find nourishment from all kinds of places. 
And they're either wells that don't hold water or they're wells that hold poison in them. And we keep coming back to them for, for, <laughs> to drink from those wells and find ourselves poisoned. And even when they're not bad things, even when they're good things, we so often ask good things to do things they were never designed to do. Think about it. In the midst of the weariness of our world, what do we sometimes turn to? If we have a good career, we turn to our career. Oh, look how great my career is. Career could be gone tomorrow. Or we turn to our family. How great of a gift is a spouse and children. But they can't hold the weight in the midst of our weary world. If we try to come and drink from that as our fountain of nourishment, it's going to run out. So the invitation for us is not to turn to even good things, but to come to Jesus. That's the call for me. That's the call for you this morning. In our world of chaos, in a world where things can change with unbelievable quickness, a world of noise, Friends, come back to Jesus time and time again. Today, tomorrow, the rest of your life. Drink of Him. And find in Him a nourishment for your soul that will never run out. Lean upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in Christ, we don't have to run elsewhere to try to find our worthiness or our nourishment. We don't have to run elsewhere try to find you, but that you have come to us in him. Teach us and form our hearts to believe those who believe on him, not just in the mental ascent that he is true, but let us come to him and crave your grace like our bodies crave water. Sustain us by it, God. I pray.